Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Classical New York at 105.9 FM and HD. WQXR Newark and 90.3 FM WQXW Osney. Good evening, I'm Terrence McKnight. All week on WQXR, we've been celebrating the Mostly Mozart Festival. The celebration continues now with the Black Experience in the Concert Hall, The Mozart Effect. You know how it is. We've come to expect, and I guess accept it, the concert hall, a concert of classical music, is not where you go expecting racial diversity. It's not a place to bask in America's cultural bounty. So this program is about those people, the experiences of those one or two black musicians you occasionally see on an opera stage or in an orchestra. People like Sanford Allen, who was in the Philharmonic back in the 60s and 70s, soprano Julia Bullock, tenor Lawrence Brownlee, cellist Alvin McCall. That's who we'll hear from tonight. We'll also hear from Bobby McFerrin, who has a great memory of being five years old. I remember being five years old, my mother coming up to the school to tell the teacher that I was left-handed and not to try and make me write with my right hand. Well, when Bobby McFerrin was five years old, his father, Robert McFerrin, made history singing at the Metropolitan Opera. Bobby's going to join us tonight. Here is some music to get us warmed up. So I'm going to start by talking about a memory I have, man. I remember being five years old and my mother coming up to my elementary school. And she came up there because I was left-handed, but the teacher was trying to get me to do all these things with my right hand. And it was difficult. You know, I felt so ostracized being this left-handed kid. She would put me on one side of the classroom. There weren't any left-handed desks or left-handed scissors. It was just kind of a difficult time. I remember that. When you were five years old, your father went to the Met and made history. You have any memories of that?
Well, there were a lot of singers that, you know, African-American singers who lived in New York that would get together occasionally. I remember them meeting over at my parents' apartment and have sort of these classical jam sessions, you know, and everyone was very excited about dad being at the mat. That was a big, you know, it was a big step. I remember going to the opera when he did Rigoletto and went backstage at the intermission and he had on all this makeup with a hunchback, you know, and stuff. And my sister was afraid of him. She wouldn't get anywhere near him. That's a memory, man. And the other thing that I need to point out, one thing that was interesting about my family is that everyone, especially my mother, was very, very quiet. I don't remember having conversations about what they were doing you know, where my dad was on tour or anything about his career. We were just little kids, my sister and I, just growing up and playing, you know, playing with the kids in the neighborhood. You know, a typical day would be come home from school, put our books down, run outside and play until dinner time. Then we'd have to finish our homework before we would watch maybe two hours of television, which, you know, I can remember what nights, what was playing, because we'd all gather around the boob tube around seven o'clock and watch Man From U.N.C.L.E. and The Fugitive and Perry Mason and The Twilight Zone and even The Flintstones. We would watch as a cartoon, you know. Other than that, everyone was kind of quiet. If anyone, you know, my, my mother knew pretty much what my father's schedule was. But, you know, my sister and I had no clue. You know, we just knew that my dad sang and he was a teacher and, and he did recital. And that was it. I remember rediscovering my father's album of Negro Spirituals called Deep River on the Riverside label. He was absolutely magnificent. You should check it out. Deep River, Robert McFerrin. Just, just so amazing. Such control, such feeling, such depth. You know, it's on my computer. It's on one of my bookmarks so that I, when I need a, a hit from that music, I just turn it on. I'm going to tell God all of my troubles when I get home. Or I think my favorite is, Let us break. Let bread us break together. bread together on our knees. Let us break bread together. Absolutely amazing control. Amazing control. Wow. Always tell the story about you, man. We were at the Schomburg. We were about to go on stage and I started humming some bass line, man. And you took my bass line and made some real music out of it. And I'm, I started thinking about your musicianship and your musicality. And I read somewhere that when you were three years old, you started, you know, kind of playing around, conducting Beethoven. I think it may have been that Seventh Symphony. I probably grabbed a pencil and stood on the coffee table and conducted a record. That's probably what that's about, because I used to do that as a kid. Now, was this because you all were going to concerts and you got to see this, or what was that about? Well, we didn't go to many concerts. My sister played violin in the University of Southern California Youth Orchestra when she was around 12. And the first time I heard Beethoven's Seventh Symphony was when 
they gave a concert and I, I heard the music for the first time. I heard Beethoven seventh for the first time. So we didn't go to many orchestral concerts. When I was growing up, the Metropolitan Opera was sponsored by Texaco. And every couple of weeks, they would have a production, you know, an opera that, you know, my sister and I would watch opera programs. And then my father would give recitals. And my mother was the principal soloist at the Episcopal Church that we attended when I was a kid growing up in Los Angeles. And so that's where I heard most of the classical music growing up, come to think of it, because the director was the head of choral studies at the University at USC in Los Angeles. And every Sunday was, was like a mini concert. He introduced me to so many different kinds of church music, which was wonderful. And he was a wonderful man. He was a wonderful guy. Talk a little bit about, if you can, man, your work with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. What do you remember about that experience? Yeah, that was a wonderful experience. That ensemble is responsible for me learning how to conduct, because prior to that, I had no experience. I didn't know how to rehearse an orchestra. I had my debut on my 40th birthday, and that was pretty much it, I thought, after that performance. But then, you know, phone calls started to come into the office. You know, we heard that Bobby's conducting. Would he like to come and conduct our orchestra? You know, I was the don't worry, be happy guy. So a lot of them were just thinking about their pension fund concerts. And uh, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to have a conducting career. I got more interested in it as I did it. As I conducted more and more, I enjoyed it more. St. Paul had offered me a position after I came and guest conducted them. So my first or second rehearsal with them, I thought that I had to speak in a particular language, you know, like conductor ease. Clarinets, you know, at bar 45, you know, more crescendo for two bars, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it was a miserable experience. So one day after a rehearsal, the first chair bassoonist, flautist, and I think maybe the oboist, sat me down and said, you know, you don't have to try and explain things to us. We know how the music goes. But if you sing to us, we'll get it. Because I was seeing the tempos, the phrasing, the dynamics. You know, I was giving them all the information that they needed just by singing their part. Because I had learned their parts. And so I would sing it back to them. So they said, just sing to us. I didn't have to talk like a conductor. All I had to do was sing to them. They said, just sing to us and we'll figure it out. So that's what I did from then on. And the rehearsals went a lot smoother. I had more confidence. And that just freed me up like crazy. Talk about, Bobby, like when you think about your career, are there like some some moments, some some concerts, some a handshake, uh, something that happened that, you know, these memorable times for you? And I, let me set up one for you. For me, you know, I was in Atlanta and I walked into uh, Atlanta Symphony Hall and Andre Watts came out to play piano. And when he started playing Beethoven, man, I thought, I don't know what this dude is doing. I don't know if he's improvising. It looks like he's improvising because it looks like he's coming out of his soul. But whatever this world is, I want to be a part of that world. And I'll never forget that experience. A similar experience was what my sister related to me when you came to Cleveland. You came to Cleveland and you conducted the orchestra. My nephew was about seven years old at the time and he was starting his locks. And you walked out onto the stage and it just confirmed for her that, you know, the locks were right. She was in the right place. What you did with that orchestra was right. And that was one of the, her memorable moments being in the concert hall. So I'm just kind of wondering about you. What, what were some of yours? 
Well, I'll tell you, the moment for me was when I heard Miles Davis's band. February 1971. The band was, of course, Miles wearing black leather pants and a black shirt, playing a black trumpet, fed through a wah-wah pedal. Jack DeJohnette on drums, Keith Jarrett on keyboards, Michael Henderson on electric bass, Gary Bartz on soprano sax. I mean, I left there that night, changed on a molecular level. Up until then, I hadn't experienced music like that. I knew what improvisation was, but I never experienced it. And the thing which is really interesting, I think it was divinely appointed that I should be there that night because when my date and I got to the club, this took place in Los Angeles at Shelley's Manhole in Hollywood. Shelley Man was a drummer and he had a club called Shelley's Manhole, which I thought, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Anyway, we got there. There was a line out the door around the block and these were people waiting to get tickets, waiting to get in. And I thought, oh, well, there's no, there's no way. There's no way we're going to get in here. Anyway, just as I'm thinking that, this woman walks out the club, walks down the line, and says, here, do you need a couple of tickets? Of course I did. So me and my date got into the club, and not only did we get into the club, but our seats were right next to the bandstand. So we didn't have to look through faces or heads in the way, because we were right up right up close. We were, we were right next to the band. And when I walked out that night, I couldn't believe what my ears heard. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life. And that, I think it was at that moment that I dedicated myself to being a good improviser. You know, I'm 70 years old, and I can't believe it. I can't believe who I've played with, who I've, the things that I've done, the, the orchestras I've conducted, you know, the cities that I've been to, the meeting with different musicians and hanging out with them and playing. I remember once in uh, Madrid after a concert, I was just by myself, so I'd collect all the money and stuff. And I'm standing on a street corner under a street lamp, and a guy comes up to me and he says, I want to sing for you, because evidently he had been to the concert or something. He says, I just want to sing for you. You sang for me, I want to sing for you. So he sang, he was this excellent flamenco singer, and he sang for me for a good five minutes, standing under a street lamp at midnight in Madrid. It was beautiful. What a beautiful moment that was. But there's been so, so, so many, so many. The song for Amadeus that you did with Chick on piano. Uh, my listeners probably get tired of hearing it. I know my friends do because I'm always playing it in my car. But it's, it's just gorgeous, man. Talk about a little bit about any experience or your experience with Mozart's music. Well, for a long time, you know, I thought, well, what's the big deal about Mozart? Because I didn't like his music. I didn't understand it. And it didn't, it, I had no connection to it. It didn't move me. Until with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, this wonderful woman connected with the orchestra. She says, what about Mozart's Symphony 29? I think it was 29. You should look at it. So I agreed to look at it. So I started studying Mozart's 29. I think it was the 29th Symphony. It's been such a long time since I've conducted it. Anyway, as I'm studying it, the world of Mozart starts to open up. I start looking at themes, how he developed them, where they went, you know, how other instruments would come along and join the principal voices and expand the harmony and play with the rhythms. And anyway, I got turned on to Mozart 
and started conducting him. And as I'm conducting him, I realized that this guy is really funny. This guy has really got a, a great sense of humor because he would do all these twists and turns that first hearing you might not notice them, but as you as you study them, they become apparent. My absolute favorite is the 40th Symphony. Absolute favorite. It's it's rock and roll. It's it's just so fabulous. There are no words. But I love conducting them because he's so whimsical, you know, besides being very serious and very and to think that this man put this music on paper from directly from his mind in ink. I mean, these ideas were finished. It's as if he was taking dictation from the spirit world or something, from heaven. As if, you know, God whispered a tune and said, Mozart, write this down. Wolfie, I got some ideas. I want you to take them and play with them a little bit. And so Wolfie would come up with these, hear these divine messages and write this beautiful music. Just astounding to me. Bobby McFerrin, that's symphony number 40, the first movement. Sanford Allen is here. Sanford, I want to talk to you um, about one of the first things that we encounter anytime anyone looks up your bio is the fact that you started Juilliard when you were 10 years old. Now, I know you just didn't walk into Juilliard with an instrument in your hand. Talk about the run up to getting there and how'd you start playing the instrument and what led you to the Juilliard school? What happened was According to my mother, she started taking me to concerts when I was about four years old. And she claimed that the people around us were very surprised because I sat there very quietly and listened to the music and apparently didn't create any sort of a disturbance at all. Now, I have no way of knowing whether or not that story is true or it's just the way she wanted it to be. But we'll never know the answers to that question. When I was about six... She started taking me to concerts of the New York Philharmonic. They had a young people's concert series. And we'd go and we'd sit there, and I saw these guys playing the violin. And it looked like an interesting thing to do, uh, irrespective of the fact that there was nobody up there who wasn't white, but the instrument interested me. So I promptly asked for a violin. We were living in Brooklyn, and my mother got on the train and went up to Juilliard 
and said, I have a son who wants to study the violin and I need a teacher. It turned out that there was, at the time, there was a very famous duo piano team called Ferrante and Teicher. And uh, Teicher's wife was a Juilliard graduate herself and had studied the violin. And she agreed to take me on as a student. So every, I guess it was Saturday, we get on a train in Brooklyn and come up to just above, just north of Juilliard for a lesson. And if my lesson was really good, then we'd go to a candy store after the lesson, and my mother would buy me something called a mellow roll. If the lesson wasn't that good, I didn't get the ice cream, so the incentive was always there. I studied with this woman for a couple of years, and then she thought, and it was she who suggested that my mother go back to Juilliard and see if she could enroll me in the preparatory division. And that's what led me to uh, Juilliard. Were there other kids in the neighborhood that were studying music like that? I wish there had been. My mother, actually, I was the first child she had. So she had a lot of theories about how to raise a child, which were tried out on me. Uh, For example, she felt that if a child could read words, then there was no reason why they couldn't read music. So the result was that by the time I was four, I could actually read most of the newspaper. And then by the time I was five, she had me learning how to read notes on a, on a clef. I guess that was one of the impulses. Sanford, you hold, um, you know, I don't have to tell you, but you hold a very unique place in American orchestras in that when we look around at our orchestras around this country, very rarely do we see a black person sitting in the string section more specifically but we're talking about the late 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, where for a long time, you were the only black person in a major symphony orchestra in that string section. I think Donald White was in Cleveland at the same time in the cello section. But can you talk a little bit about that unique perspective that you may have gained or that you gained sitting in that section of one of the great orchestras in the world. It was a mixed reaction and uh, rather surrealistic. For example, occasionally we'd be sitting somewhere, playing somewhere, and I could see people pointing at me, which made me feel a bit like a museum exhibit, uh, which was not a particularly enjoyable feeling. Also, to be blunt about it, I once confronted the management because... I felt that I was auditioning to be promoted and was getting, I felt, passed over. And I finally asked the question, is it their feeling that uh, everybody who, was, who passed over me uh, played better than I did? And Bernstein's reply was, well, I, I don't have time to go into all of that. And even if I had time, I'm still not sure I could go into all of that. To which I replied that I felt that that was sufficient answer for me to know what to do from that point on. And my position after that was that I would not take any more internal auditions, which upset the management considerably. And uh, the personnel manager said, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, first of all, I can. There's nothing in the contract that says I have to play one. And since I'm not interested in taking any more, I don't see any legal way that you can force me to do that. I said, in fact, if you apply enough pressure, I will request to be moved back in the section. So let's try that on for a while. 
they proceeded then to more or less leave me alone. But uh, the situation became increasingly untenable, both for them and for me. Uh, I was occasionally accused of being insufficiently grateful, as they put it. And I didn't quite see any reason for that, especially since there were at least several people I can remember who were not as qualified as I was in terms of their ability to digest the music and perform it. But one of the neg more negative aspects of it was that I was sitting there in the Philharmonic playing while the marches were going on in Selma and various things were happening to a lot of my brethren. And I developed very intense guilt feelings because I felt that actually I should have been doing that as opposed to sitting in a quite cushy job that put me at no risk at all. And it took me many years to get over that, those feelings of guilt. They just, they stayed with me for a long, for several decades, actually. Safford, did you, I mean, there were a lot of um, musicians around you, uh, black musicians who didn't have these opportunities to play in the Philharmonic. I can think of a, a bunch of them. You know, I'm thinking about the founders of the Symphony of the New World you know, a group of 14 black musicians. I'm wondering if you felt any pressure uh, now that you had this position in the Philharmonic to um, one, represent the race or two, be as a sort of liaison between uh, all of these black musicians who wanted that opportunity and the orchestra. Did you feel any of that external pressure? I felt a great deal of external pressure. I couldn't be a liaison because you can only be a liaison if both parties want some kind of connection. And since the Philharmonic was not interested in having a connection, actually, um, they were more interested in window dressing than anything else. I couldn't perform that role. But the Philharmonic, as a result of my being there, for example, somewhere in the, oh, I don't know, maybe it was the early 70s, they had those uh, commission hearings with two black players who accused them of discrimination. Now, I got pressure from both sides. One of the two players was very upset because I told him that I could not support his claim, primarily because I hadn't heard his audition. So I was in no position to say that he had played well enough to warrant a position in the orchestra. He felt that I was dodging the issue, but uh, I simply thought that he was being irrational at that point. On the other hand, the management wanted me to testify that they did not discriminate. And I felt I couldn't do that either. So the result was that both sides were rather upset with me, which was something I was perfectly prepared to live with. But uh, I did find it a bit annoying, I suppose. When you think back to that time, you know, those years that, that you spent in that orchestra, what were some of the most fond memories well, let's see. There were some guest conductors who were quite remarkable. Ricardo Muti being one, Colin Davis being another, Charles Munch being a third. Quite superior conductors who, without being the slightest bit dictatorial, managed to bring some of their personality and views into the performance in a way that actually illuminated the music. On the other hand, one of my stranger moments occurred. We were in... California at the Hollywood Bowl, and uh, Bernstein was conducting. We were supposed to do the Brahms double with Heifetz and Piatigorsky. And Heifetz 
had not played with the orchestra in some years at that point, and when he walked out onto the stage, the orchestra broke into spontaneous applause, which didn't seem to please Bernstein at all. And when we started rehearsing, Bernstein picked a tempo that was not to Heifetz's liking. It was slower than he wanted it. So when it came time for Heifetz's entrance, Heifetz simply played faster, and the orchestra followed him, which again created another kind of tension. And then the minute Heifetz finished his section, the tempo got pulled back. So the result was that poor Piatigorsky was left having to play the entire piece in two different tempos. When Heifetz was playing, he played with Heifetz, and when Heifetz wasn't playing, he had to play with Bernstein's tempo. I found the whole thing quite disconcerting, and I thought, isn't this interesting the way they play this game here? But it was sort of etched in my memory and never, never faded. Sounds like ego. Uh, a bit, yeah. The only person who really suffered was Brahms. <laughs> it's so hard for orchestras to open up their arms to black musicians i mean there are black musicians all over the place man in in the conservatories out of the conservatories and classrooms why has it been so difficult unlike the nba or the nfl or you know you can name the sports but why has it been so difficult do you think for classical music to to be more embracing well I think there's several reasons, one of which is that it's okay for us to play sports. It's not okay for us to play the viola, for example. That's not one of the things that the establishment tends to view as being acceptable. I think the real problem with, other than these sort of cultural associations, which are dying a very slow death, uh, I think that, for example, symphony orchestras like museums are actually run by the boards. And I think that these boards are some of the most reactionary population centers in the country. And if they were actually to decide, since they control the purse strings ultimately, if they were to decide that it was a problem that needed to be solved, it would have been solved by now. Uh, They either don't want it or have no interest in it. I'm not sure which it is. Now, you've played a lot of music. What about Mozart? Do you have any favorite music by Mozart? I think probably the Mozart Requiem. The Requiem, because it's it's a kind of uniquely dark piece, uh, but full of a great deal of passion. And uh, when done properly, there's a kind of arc that goes from the first piece to the first movement to the last movement. 
And if you're talented enough to present that architecture, the cumulative effect can be quite stunning. I think it's a quite remarkable piece with quite unusual orchestrations on the part of Mozart. I find it one of his most appealing pieces. Violinist Sanford Allen, one of his favorite works, Lacrimosa from Mozart's Requiem, that was performed by the St. Olaf Choir, Andreas Delfs conducting the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. This is the Black Experience in the Concert Hall, the Mozart Effect on WQXR. I'm Terrence McKnight. This is WQXR. I'm Terrence McKnight. This is our week where we celebrate the Mostly Mozart Festival. So let's hear our next guest, tenor Lawrence Brownlee. He grew up not too far from me in Northeast Ohio. In 2013, Lawrence Brownlee was here in the city making his debut at the Mostly Mozart Festival. So I brought him on this show so you could meet him. And if you've already met Larry Brownlee, I'm sure you want to hear from him again. Lawrence Brownlee, thanks for taking my call, sir. Anytime, my brother. Anytime. It may have been April. I was talking to um, a group of students at Hunter College who were coming out of the music program. They had a virtual commencement. And I talked about, you know, the pandemic being tough and, it, you know, uh, everybody having picking up new habits and uh, not being able to do a lot of us what we love to do. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about things going back to normal. And I remember saying something like, 
I'm not interested in going back to normal because normal ain't been that great for me. Normal has never been that great for me. So I'm interested in creating something new. We come out of this. We should all be more passionate about something. We should all hold dear something a little closer. Those things that matter to us a little more closely coming out of this, man, we shouldn't come back and go back to business as usual, especially if usual wasn't that great for us. And then shortly thereafter, you know, Mr. Arbery and Mr. Floyd and Miss Taylor. And, you know, so I'm wondering about you, Larry. I know you've been doing a lot of talking. You've been doing a lot of writing. You've been doing a lot of sharing. So on the other side of this, on the other side of this pandemic, man, when you, you know, when you think about what you want to say and how you want to say it and who you want to say it to and what you want to sing and how you want to be, what, what are you feeling? What does that look like for Brownlee? Like you, I hope we are better. You know, people say to me all the time, we've done so well or we've done good things, you know, and I say, you guys have a different perspective than I do. And the way, you know, people will talk about how, um, how great America is, great for who? There should be an asterisk on that, you know? And so when we come out of this pandemic and, you know, there's a heightened awareness, you talked about Ahmad Arbar, you talk about Breonna Taylor, there's so many other names, of course, most recently and egregiously, George Floyd. And I think everybody, because of COVID, has had to sit down and acknowledge or take, you know, really see with eight minutes and 46 seconds what our lives have been, you know, that's just a microcosm of what our lives have been for many, 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 many years. And so uh, the fact that we're not moving, we're at home. Uh, that should bring about an awareness. And so what I've been doing with my time, I've been busy, I've been writing, I've been talking, I've been being interviewed, I've been you know, a part of panels. I've challenged people to not just pay it lip service. Uh, one of the things I've been engaging is I host a book club and we have been reading about racism. So when we come out of this, even if I can do a small part by trying to energize the atmosphere with conversation and try to provoke people to think and talk and try to present a different perspective, that's important to me. So I hope people will flock to the theaters. I hope people will experience or want to experience live music and the creation of that in its natural habitat. And so I'm hopeful. Uh, and so all I can do, all that I want to do during this time is to be active, to make sure that when we do come out of this, and we will, uh, that we are in a better place because I don't like you. I don't want to return back to normal. Let's talk about this art form, man, that you are so deeply and successfully involved in. Let's talk about it in terms of how possibly the art that you perform, the houses where you perform it, the constituencies for which you play. Let's talk about this in terms of incubating ideas and notions of white supremacy. How do those halls and that's centuries old music, how do we reckon with this, Larry? Let me just tell you about a feeling. I remember being, you know, six or seven years old going down to Severance Hall. You know, we're both Ohioans. Ohio, <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> I remember being, man, you know, in elementary school going down to Severance Hall to see the Cleveland Orchestra being so excited. Because, you know, I was, you know, the youngest of five and one of my sisters played violin, another played clarinet, my brother played guitar, my sister was in the choir and, you know, I picked up a trumpet and piano and, 
Went down to Severance Hall with my classmates, man, and I was excited because I'd be able to point to all the instruments. You know, I had a little knowledge and got down there, man, and was just like blown away by the scope. And um, it was just like a different thing. I had never, you know, I grew up in church and, you know, kind of a small church. So I, this was like a big museum for me and, and went down there and I didn't feel this sort of warmth you know, that I felt from the old ladies at church. It just seemed a little bit cold. You know, I didn't see, there was one black musician in the orchestra at the time. And, you know, I'm a young kid, man, and I didn't really pick up on, I just knew that there was something about the energy that seemed outside of myself, outside of my culture. Larry, how do we transform that experience, man? Or does that experience need transforming? It's an old experience. It's, you know, rooted in Western European culture. But here are people like you and so many others and like myself who are trying to do things to make it more accessible to other folks, trying to Americanize it a little bit more. Talk about your early, uh, your early experience, man, going into a, a large concert hall or being in an orchestral environment. Well, let me start with this idea of white supremacy. And a lot of people think that white supremacy is uh, the most extreme of things, meaning people on white sheets or swastikas or all these other things that the white race is supreme. Yes, that is a part of white supremacy, but white supremacy is just the pervasiveness of white culture as the only thing that's acceptable. And when you talk about going into these artistic institutions, they weren't set up for people that look like us. You know, the funding wasn't set up for people that look like us. The performance, the programming, the people that they cater to, the people that they support, the people that they promote, they weren't set up for people like us. But I remember as a young kid going to a theater and it was all white. You know, the group of kids I went with from my school, I went to a fairly diverse school, but, you know, it was us living in a white world, being in a white institution. And you don't call it white and you don't have to because that's just understood. That's what these theaters are. You know, they have been. And so people like Leontine Price, who were born to sing this, Martina Arroyo, Grace Bunbury, you know, Denise Graves, Kathleen Battle, their voices should be. But since we have had the history of not belonging you know, it seems that we're trying to infiltrate and uh, they're not allowing us in by the droves. It's just one here, one there. And so when you talk about me being involved in classical music, I actually came to this by accident, if you want to call it. You know, someone heard something in my voice that they said my voice was suitable for classical music. And so I said, I, like you, grew up in a family of six kids in church, gospel and other things. That was it. And the interesting thing about art is there are a lot of people who look like you and I, if you want to say it that way, who have similar talent to people who've been really successful, but they haven't had the access. And you think that some people have to be insanely talented to just be accepted. If our society, if our history hadn't been what it was, I just can imagine the culturally rich possibilities that we could have and how much farther ahead if we had invested in the minds of people that look like us and give it the opportunities and the access. You talked about accessibility that hasn't been there. And so what I'm trying to do in my work, in my business, is just to try to expose people, to show them that we have a tremendous legacy in this, to show them that we are gifted to do this. And not just the Leontine prices, but there are a lot of people on every level who could be doing this. And that's the work I want to do. 
because I believe that this is an art form that should be enjoyed by all. Another important way I think you've been contributing to this idea of making the concert experience feel more American is some of the work you've done with Damien Sneed. You know, those spirituals, those arrangements of those spirituals. Talk a bit about that project. Mm -hmm. Damien Sneed, one of my good friends and I, we came together years ago. Uh, actually, Damien came to hear me sing for the first time at the Mostly Mozart Festival. And he said, you know, we got to do work together. And I said, well, that'd be great. And so since Damien and I have similar backgrounds, he studied jazz and classical and gospel. That was his background. Uh, we felt that we wanted to take these spirituals as being the links between, you know, the people that came before us to this time. We felt because our tradition is so deeply ensconced in the American spiritual, it was important for us to bring this into the century. So Damien and I, we've taken these spirituals and we've come up with a number of spirituals that have been, you know, I'm happy to say very successful and many people are doing these now. And so we feel that we've tried to at least add a little bit to the canon, the performance practices that people are putting these on stages now and that the spirituals are again, really continuing their legacy because I think they are a part of American history and of course, African-American history. Let's talk about your voice type. You have a particular voice that suits Music by Rossini and Bellini, Donizetti. What about Mozart? I know he wrote music for his wife, who was a singer. Some of his other friends, horn player here, clarinetist there. Did he write for a particular voice type, a particular singer who had a voice like yours? It's interesting because most of the roles of Mozart don't go very high for a tenor. And so I... I think that he did write for some voices that he knew. And perhaps these tenors were limited in their abilities to sing above certain notes. Because if you think of his writing, it never taxed that part of anyone's range. And so the idea of tenor singing high, you know, when you go back to these tenors, uh, who was it? Um, the first tenor who sang like a full-throated high C. You know, he was around during the time that Mozart was writing. And so Mozart could have written for this type of voice for a tenor. In some of his work, Mitridate is a bit higher, but the standard Mozart roles for tenors were not that high. Cosi, Donotavia, not that high. Tamino, not that high. In the sense that they didn't go into the register of the tenor, like B-flat, you, you never see it. So there is a certain categorization people like to call a Mozart tenor. It doesn't extend very high. So since I have a higher voice, I, would, I guess I would say I'm not necessarily a Mozart tenor, although I am, you know, I can sing Mozart, uh, but I think it was written for a specific type of voice, yes. Got a favorite Mozart? My favorite Mozart piece is Misero o Sogno o Sondesto. And this is a Mozart concert aria, and I actually performed it at the, uh, the Mostly Mozart Festival. 
yes, I like Ferrando. I like Don Ottavio. I like all these ones I've done. The first thing I ever did was the first opera role I ever sang was Tamino and the Magic Flute. So, of course, I have a great love for Mozart. Uh, but it would be Misero o Sogno o Sondesto because it's incredibly difficult and it's never done. But it is so much fun when you can perform this in a concert setting. My guest, tenor Lawrence Brownlee. He's also my homie from Ohio. Now, on to someone who's been part of the Mostly Mozart Festival Orchestra since 1986. He's also a member of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. He's been there since 1994. A finalist in the 1982 International Competition, Tchaikovsky Competition. Talking about cellist Alvin McCaw. Alvin, thanks for being here with us. Take us back to your musical start at school, at church. What was your musical environment like growing up? I mean, if you didn't know that I'm the youngest of six kids. And uh, at some point, my oldest brother, who's 12 years older than me, got grabbed by this music teacher, Margaret Davis. And basically all my older siblings were string players. So at some point, she met me and took me into this room with lots of instruments and asked me which one I wanted to play. At least that's the story I remember her telling me. And I guess I pointed to the violin. So at eight, I played that. And then I switched to cello when I decided my hand was too big for that small instrument when I was 12. And I essentially, because, well, the schools were segregated, of course, and uh, they needed more violinists than cellists, I guess. I played violin in school, took cello lessons from 12 on or whatever, and uh, stopped playing the violin when I left when I left Newport News to go to North Carolina School of the Arts. Yeah. Now, how did those instruments translate to the work you were doing in church? Uh, in church, all I did was sing. Because my mom, pianist for the, the senior choir, but she was also the only pianist. She was the pianist, and there was another organist that did the senior choir. And uh, she was in charge of the Buds Choir, which is the one I sang in mostly, I guess. You know, the little kids. Yeah. Do you remember any of the songs you sang? No. Yes, you do. It's been a while. Jesus Loves Me. Uh, ooh. Although, at some point, the uh, organist got changed. There was a young guy who was, I don't know, maybe five years older than me. He took over, and we started doing The Messiah. And that's the, the first time I learned The Messiah was in church with this director. And I swear, I, I still I still know the words to... Uh, Surely, surely he has borne our griefs. I mean, I, I sort of know the bass part to a bunch of Messiah uh, choruses, in addition to having listened to it a lot and played it a lot since then. So I sort of learned choruses from the Messiah, started with him, but then I kept, I kept up that one up, because that's another one of my favorite pieces. Now, what kind of church was this? Uh, African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. AME Zion. AME Zion, yes, indeed. We had a l nice gospel chorus in that church, too, as I recall. Have you ever felt like um, like an oddball, like a musical oddball? Not really, because you know, all the kids played classical, and I was sort of raised in classical at home. At home, I didn't. My mom played for church, but my father had learned how to play piano at some point in his life, because I had this vague memory of him playing Claire de Lune on the piano. I think that's the only thing I ever heard him play on the piano. I mean, he, he joined the Navy, got out of the Navy, and he'd gotten married and was about to have kids or whatever. Um, so he was working his way, you know, one or two jobs for the rest of his life, basically, to take care of six kids. And um, he managed it quite well. I mean, he managed it. 
the kids were intelligent, so they got they got around. And at school, yeah, the kids all basically respected the fact that I played classical music. I mean, my my classmates, they accepted it. Man, I got teased about it. I got teased about going to piano lessons in my neighborhood. Well, I may have, but I don't remember. That's one thing my <laughs> wife says I do is I, I let things sort of roll off my back and may, or maybe hold it in as anger for later. But I try, try not to let things bother me too. But I don't, I don't recall specifically being uh, made fun of. Andre Watt said his mother gave him karate lessons to kind of fend off wow. <laughs> the bullies in the neighborhood. Yeah. My, my mom bought me a Great Dane. But it was it was a bit tough because I think there was this, you know, if you wanted to like excel in school, some people accuse you of trying to be white or trying to be oh. something else. You know, if you were playing classical music, you were trying to be something else. No, this was not part of my life at all. I mean, my, my dad and my parents, especially my dad, wanted us to just get a definite education and be intelligent to get ahead. And that's what we did. And that's that's what the family did. I don't. I was never chastised for doing that. I remember competing with this other girl, this girl in my, was it? But I moved from one segregated school from, from Newsom Park to went to Carver Junior High. And there was a girl that was real intelligent. It was good to be in com- competition with her. So the uh, getting into good education was definitely part of what was considered normal in my family and, and generally accepted by all my friends. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you had a nice circle of influence around you. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've been through a lot, man. I mean, a lot has happened since you've been in St. Louis. I'm thinking about things that like things that happened in our culture that kind of brought about some either racial tension or racial ease or racial progress. Thinking about things like Rodney King, OJ Simpson, Barack Obama being elected Black Lives Matters. And so sometimes I think when you're in those situations and those environments where you're the only one, people kind of look to you for a response or they kind of look to you for information. Do any of those situations stand out to you where you had to be either a spokesperson or a translator or try to like stand in the in the in the gap? Fortunately, no, because I'm like, I, I don't take responsibility spokesperson ideas very easily. I mean, I don't take the responsibility of being a spokesperson to heart or something. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not very good with words and trying to convince people to do the right thing is something I sort of given up on. Uh, but I'm certainly glad that these days that people other than the blacks are trying to get things changed. This may be the only way anything's going to get changed is if more non blacks that are being that realize the thing how how things have been for the blacks in this country glad that they more of them realize what's going on and they if they can get it changed great i mean yeah john lewis worked hard as, as well as, as martin luther king but uh, things have been moving along very incrementally with with their work were you in the concert hall that day where i heard some protesters were in the balcony in st louis my, it was the when the Michael Brown was shot that summer. I heard about that. I was in New York. And we came back and we were doing the Brahms Requiem. And um, all of a sudden, beginning of the second half, they started chanting. They started singing. The conductor very graciously stood there until they were done singing their song. And then they took down their banner and left. They were not forced out of the hall. And I thought that was great. I mean, actually, 
some sometimes they have people come out and say, I'm Alvin McCall, I've been a member of the you know cello section or whatever section for so many years. And um, we want to invite you to come and resubscribe, basically. Thank you for coming to our concert. I was thinking, this must have been the beginning of the season, because we always play the Star Spaniel Banger at the beginning of the season. And backstage, I asked David Robertson, this was more than two years ago again, if if I should go out and kneel during the during the Star Spangled Banner, because this was back when uh, the football player was chastised by the, our wonderful president. Um, and he said he didn't know what to tell me. And I didn't go out and do anything. I just went out and did my thing and played the cello. But I'm glad he's been vindicated, at least through all this, except for the way that he has been, for everybody seeing all the stuff that's happened to the black people in this country by police. Now, you've been doing some work with the Harlem School of the Arts and other schools around your local area in Missouri. How important is that to you? I mean, I'd imagine it's pretty important for those young people to see you in that string section, to see you playing. Well, I've been going out to schools with a bass player with a program called The Low End of Sound, and we just talk and play little duets or little things. And I think it's very important for me to go out and at least show myself to the kids and show what playing the cello is like up, up close. So I've been doing that for, for the last, I don't know, eight, nine years, probably. So yeah, it's very important to get out and let the kids know that they can do something. Because there, there are lots of music programs here near Kirkwood, where a, a black conductor used to be a bass player, had built up a nice orchestra in, in Kirkwood. How do we make things more equitable? Um, how do we make things more American? How do we make this experience feel more American, man? More like the concert scene, man. How do we make it, you know, not like something that's foreign to, you know, you going to your auntie's house or going to church or going to, you know, in your neighborhood or to a basketball game? How do we make it feel like it's more a part of our own culture as opposed to stepping into a different century? Because I think that that's one of the kind of hurdles that we have to get through. I mean, we're trying. I mean, we, we I guess we have concerts devoted to black experience. Well, we have our Black History Month concert here in St. Louis, Black History Month concert and gospel Christmas concerts, just specifically aimed at getting more color in the, in the seats. And then twice, Wynton Marsalis and the Jazz Lincoln Center has come down and done his symphony, which was great. Programming helps. When the symphony has chamber groups going in to play at the uh, in unison churches, which are mostly black churches around the bi-state area, we've been playing a, this movement from a Florence Price string quartet for the churches, and then a gospel piece. So we've been trying to get, you know, more blacks interested in some aspect of classical music by playing black composers. Let's talk Mozart, man. Does Mozart make you smarter? I suppose it does. We played it for our kids because that's what the CD said that we bought back in the day. How they doing? They're all very intelligent. So maybe actually, I think we might have stopped playing the Mozart for the after the second kid. You know what kids do to you? You forget everything you're supposed to do right. When you think about Mozart's music, is there a, any melody that comes out? Uh, last year was sort of a great year. We were over in the pit at the State Theater. We did Magic Flute. And uh, there's one thing from this, when Tamina is lamenting the fact that she thinks that Tamino doesn't love her. And it's a very beautiful G minor aria in 6-8 that comes to mind. 
And when the singers weren't there for rehearsals, it was a pain. And unfortunately, I, I tended to fill in for the voice parts. But Louis didn't mind, thank goodness. Nazaria, Ach ich Fuß, from Mozart's The Magic Flute. Cellist Alvin McCall, he's the assistant principal cello of the Mostly Mozart Festival Orchestra. Cellist in the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Another St. Louis native is the soprano we're about to talk to, Julia Bullock. Did you grow up um, going to see the St. Louis Symphony? I did not. Um, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of classical music in my home. It was just, yeah, a lot of recordings. My, my dad had a lot of jazz recordings, and my mom had a lot of her, you know, 60s and 70s rock and roll, psychedelic music, folk music. But classical music, other than Peter and the Wolf, really, that was the only thing that I listened to regularly, that was on record. Um, <laughs> Talk about the strong memories. What do you remember? What do you remember as that kid showing up, looking at that big stage and all those instruments? I remember being swept away by the sound, but also being feeling simultaneously very distant from what I was hearing. And because it was, I felt very, I hate to say strapped into my seat, but you know, they, they had these... I think there were velvet red seats and white and gold all around. But I, I remember feeling really, yeah, just distant and not, not able to internalize what I was hearing, which is so interesting because my relationship with music, at least in my home, listening to things on record or in a dance class, it was like being able to 
physically engage with the music that I was hearing was so, felt so natural for me. So to, I was, I was, I remember working really hard to, to connect. I, I do remember that, but it not happening naturally. And yeah, it wasn't until later. <laughs> I can relate to that. You know, I grew up with a lot of music in our house. We listened to music on the radio and records sometimes on Saturdays. And, but I, when I went to hear the orchestra and cause I remember our teacher had us to like, if you want to ask the musicians questions, you know, write your questions and I'll pick, you know, who gets to ask. And, but I remember getting there and just feeling like this is very different than listening to music at home or going to church. And it just felt like something that one perhaps had to grow into, but you, you grow up and you study the music and you go to the conservatories and you do all the work. And yet, and still Julia, somehow it feels outside of one's experience. I think that's sort of what, you know, a lot of conversations lately have been about, like how to bring some more equity and equality and inclusiveness to the experience. What kind of conversations have you been having since we've all had this time off away from performing? And what kind of revelations or epiphanies? I don't know if they're epiphanies, but I definitely... um I have been writing a lot about and speaking now more plainly about how I have benefited from supremacist systems that we all function within. You know, I'm a, I'm a light-skinned brown person. I have benefited because I uh, am of mixed heritage and I've asserted that. And also I, I've benefited just through my white adjacency. My biological father was black. He died when I was nine. But then when my stepfather, who is white, and my mom, you know, they, they raised me most of my life. And I was raised in white spaces and navigating those spaces most of my life. And it's my white stepfather who introduced me to classical music. You know, when we talk about, you know, how, how did you start connecting with classical music? I mean, that wasn't until I was in my teens and my stepdad just, took time with me. And it, I was already taking some voice lessons at this point, but he just gave me CDs and, and sat me in front of the television um, with his favorite DVD recordings and performances of opera. So I came to love classical music by one individual taking, seeing that I had an interest or a talent in this field. And he helped me fall in love with classical music, the way that it was introduced to me. So after you, you know, you're watching DVDs and you're talking to your stepfather about this music and, you know, you're developing your voice. So then what? How do you go from, you know, somebody sitting at home watching videos to actually being on that stage, making it happen? What was that journey? Well, I took voice lessons because it was uh, suggested to us I was performing musical theater at that time already, but I had, I couldn't, I didn't want to practice. I just didn't really understand or connect with what I was being asked to do. I knew though that I always wanted to perform. And then I also met a teacher who suggested that I audition for the artisan training program with Opera Theater of St. Louis. And that is where I started getting free voice lessons, free coachings, and a coach there helped to unlock something in me. He helped me to understand the connection between the text and the music and also how I could start embodying 
all the things that I was thinking about the music that I was hearing and making. But I, I auditioned for some conservatories. And yeah, when I went to conservatory at Eastman School of Music, that is where within my like second week of school, she compared me to my voice teacher, my primary voice teacher compared me to Josephine Baker, who is you know from St. Louis herself. But at that time, I didn't know much about her other than the fact that she danced in a banana skirt and I was offended and taken aback. But then when I started researching Josephine Baker, it was like, oh man, this, this light sort of went off, I guess, in me in terms of my own research. But it is, honestly, it's really painful thinking about these early years going into classical music. It's painful and wonderful (laughs) because I was... In some ways, I went into classical music because I was trying to find my, really trying to find my voice. But I also knew very well that this is not material that I felt totally at home in and felt comfortable in. And it was really only through going like deeply into the world of classical music and also some of the comparisons that were being made of me, for me, that I, I could eventually start owning classical music as something that was, that was mine. Mm-hmm. Every, every musician's relationship with, with music is um, obviously very personal, but when you're dealing with this idea, like dealing with your identity as a person of color and trying to come to terms with that, in a realm <laughs> where um, your physical identity is constantly brought to your attention. It's just, there's, a, there's an added layer of stress, but it also intensifies the experience because when you, at least I feel, when I finally did start taking ownership of the music that I wanted to make and, and I am continuing to take more and more ownership of how I want to make it and with whom, yeah, it's, it's, it's immensely powerful, but it was really confusing at the start. I'm really interested in what you said about that teacher unlocking something because that resonated for me. You know, I remember being in, in grad school and going into a piano lesson and I was playing the, these Rachmaninoff preludes and my teacher said, you're playing them like you don't like they don't belong to you. Like you don't really understand what it's about. He said, this music, these preludes are about something that we all do as human beings. And that's what Rachmaninoff was going for in these preludes. And I want you to, to, to grab every prelude and show me where the height of the emotion is. And after that lesson, Julia, I went home and I was like, oh man, this is about me. I know this emotion. And he said, you don't have to be Russian to experience this. This ain't about color. It ain't about generation. It's a human thing. And that was something 
that unlocked it for me and allowed me to like take ownership of this music, all of this music I was playing. And you know what? I felt like it offended some people. I remember saying it on radio, something about, you know, taking ownership of the music and we all own it. And there was someone who wrote to me saying, yo, man, you don't own this. This isn't your culture. Your culture is inferior to this. Yeah, you just said outwardly that your culture is inferior to this. Your culture is inferior to this. I mean, and that I think that's something that exists in our classical music world simply because of its history. I mean, it was created in Western Europe and there weren't a whole bunch of black folks involved in it. And so it was almost to him as if I was impeding on their turf. And I'm wondering if you've had any of those kind of comments or experiences. I definitely experienced the exoticism, you know, the uh, people's fascination with me not being purely Western European and singing this music and saying how it's extraordinary to watch and really the exact words and almost (laughs) extraordinary to watch like an almost animalistic embodiment of this music take place. And, uh, that was in France the first time that was said to me that as well. I was still in school. It is, it is remarkable because you go through the, you know, this initial experience of classical music and already feeling so distant and you go through all of this work and people also, like individuals, take the time to get to know you as an individual and then to enter into that world, feel like you can take up space and enjoy it. And then it immediately, it's like some of the first... Some of the first engagements with the public, it's like you, you're Im- immediately reminded in one way or another that you're not a part of it, that is, or that you should be distant again. So since you're in Munich, let me ask you about Mozart. You're not too far from where he used to thrive. <laughs> <laughs> one of the places, yeah. <laughs> any connection to Mozart's music, Julia? Got any favorite Mozart? Oh, Yes. Yes. I mean, so Nozze di Figaro, that was the first opera I sang in a foreign language. It was my second opera ever to be involved in. (laughs) Um, But I I sang Susanna. I was 21, 22 at Eastman School of Music. Oh, I was so stressed out learning that role. I didn't think I would ever be able to finish learning this long, it's the longest role in in history, I think. Um, but wow. Yeah. And actually it's so, it was so cool singing it because that was one of the first opera DVDs that my stepfather gave to me. It was a Glyndebourne performance with Kiri Takanawa and, uh, Federico von Stade. And, um, to then like take on this masterwork that really, honestly, when I watched Kiri and, and Flicka, I, it's, you know how like time and space just stops and you're just like that you're transported. It's like even with all these heavy curtains and, and historic costumes, I, yeah, talk about just human connection, like that vibration. And, and even on a tiny little screen, I felt the power of Mozart's music in, in that. And so to take that on felt amazing. I don't think, I don't know how well I sang it, I'll be honest <laughs> with you and i hope no one ever goes and listens to that but um, we're calling eastman right now trying to get that recorded oh i will never speak to you again <laughs> i know people down there but, <laughs> but um yes that 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 piece is about forgiveness isn't it it's about betrayal and then ultimately forgiveness but i I'm, i'll tell you my favorite my favorite moment in that opera is in act three when 
Figaro, you know, after all of his life, thinking that he was an orphan, thinking that he was alone and was, you know, was trying to build relationships, honest relationships with people and get ahead in some way. And Susanna is really the first, that's the real connection of his life. But then when he finds out that he's not an orphan, oh, I, I cry every time. I know it's kind of, a, it's sort of, it's supposed to be a comedic moment. It is a comedic moment in the opera. It's like, this is your mother, this is your mother, this is your father, this is your father? sing together these you know voices who had been at such discord and discontent talk about how content they are and are singing in this oh my god it's just <laughs> it's just one of those glorious yeah glorious moments that story is a story that anybody can relate to you don't have to be german you don't have to be austrian you don't have to be just have to be human and i think that story just touches everybody and i think that's the possibility with this art form and and so accessibility becomes so important you know to make people feel invited and welcome into these spaces you know i think it's those conversations that allow us to kind of go into places that seem a little scary and daunting yeah well and also not not coming at it from a place of assumption you know that's another thing too i if if anyone had i i looking back at myself years ago and dancing and just enjoying performing, I never would have, could have imagined what classical music would have provided for me. Or being in that concert hall for the first time and someone saying, oh yeah, you know, you're gonna be, you'll be singing and rehearsing up with these musicians, like no freaking way. I don't relate, but it's because as, yeah, that, that personal connection, but also not making any assumptions. The people who I interacted with pretty early on in my life, you know, there were some who made serious you know, assumptions about me, but there were those few who just took that time and it made themselves available, made themselves available, therefore making the music available. Because that's, that's what the music does. It just provides us with a conduit to connect with each other in a very immediate way, in a visceral way. And that's vital. <laughs> it's vital. And I do mean that in the survival sense. <laughs> I really do. Vocalist Julia Bullock joining us here on WQXR. I'm Terrence McKnight. This is The Black Experience in the Concert Hall. And I'll tell you, ever since I was seven or eight years old, I recognized there was this odd curious relationship between black skin and classical music 
And so on this program, we delve into that. We discuss it. We raise questions, perhaps some eyebrows, all with the intention of bringing us all closer together through music. <laughs> 